This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting Corporation and Supertalk Mississippi Media. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Jolan Insami, your co-host, joined by economist Natasha Serdorch, co-founder of International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable guests include leading voices from business, government, media, energy, technology, healthcare, and the broad policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Spotify. Visit America's Roundtable at americasrt.com. americasrt.com. Follow us on Facebook, America's Roundtable, and Twitter at americasrt. We invite donors and advertisers to reach us by visiting our website, americasrt.com. Welcome to America's Roundtable. Good morning and welcome to America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. This weekend on America's Roundtable, we are joined by Alex Trayman, CEO and Jerusalem Bureau Chief of Jewish News Syndicate, JNS. Trayman is a veteran Israeli journalist, radio show host, documentary filmmaker, startup consultant, and public relations specialist. He writes on Israeli political developments and U.S.-Israel relations. Trayman grew up in New Jersey and moved to Israel in 2004. And without any further delay, we welcome Alex Trayman, who is joining us now from Jerusalem, Israel. Welcome and good morning to you, Alex. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Natasha. Good morning, Joel. Alex, uh, three weeks ago this Saturday, uh, Jewish Israelis in the southern part of the Jewish state woke up to Hamas and Palestinian Jihad terrorists barging into their homes, their bedrooms, and killing civilians, the elderly, parents, children, and even murdering babies. Uh, you just mentioned that Israel is still counting the bodies, and based on the current accounts, there are some 1,400 lives lost, over 4,500 wounded in what has become known as the worst single-day tragedy since the Holocaust. And during the same time, some 260 young people attending a music concert were murdered. And there are some 222 hostages kept by Hamas in Gaza Strip. Our hearts go out to the victims of this horrific attacks on October 7. Alex, could you walk us through that fateful day, October 7, 2023, and share with us and our listeners your own experiences and the evidences provided to you through videos, photographic evidences, and the messages presented by Jewish Israelis as they faced over 2,000 Hamas terrorists who breached Israel's border. Right. Well, October 7th uh, was a Jewish holy day. It was the day of Simchat Torah. That's the day in which the Jewish people uh, finish their annual cycle of reading the Torah and they begin it again on the same day. It's a very joyous day on the, on the Jewish calendar, one of the most important holidays. Uh, and uh, we had gone to the synagogue in the evening the night before uh, and you know, weren't thinking that war was on the uh, foreseeable horizon. Uh, but sure enough, uh, we woke up that morning to the sound of air raid sirens, uh, had to take our our kids downstairs in the building where we were staying barefoot into bomb shelters um, and understood that Israel was under attack. But, you know, Israelis are used to these types of attacks. Hamas has been firing rocket salvos at Israel and trying to infiltrate the border uh, on regular occurrences over the last several years. It seems like every six months to a year, there's another flare up on the Gaza border. Um, and then we started to hear from 
other families that were in the bomb shelter that uh, something more serious had taken place and that there was a serious infiltration and that it it sounds like uh, could be dozens, if not hundreds of people killed uh, and nobody could believe it. Um, and then we started to see the various uh, soldiers who or reservists uh, that were home for the holidays and aren't, ne- aren't necessarily in, in active service, you know, driving through the town, which usually wouldn't take place on a Jewish holy day uh, in their uniforms. And, and we started to understand um, that uh, Israel was at war. And what happened that morning and we, we hear that the first infiltrations of the border could have taken place even as early as 4.30 in the morning. But certainly by about 6.30 in the morning, um, large numbers of Hamas terrorists, as many as 2,000, uh, crossed into Israel, penetrated the border in 30 different locations using explosive devices, bulldozers, uh, that there were paragliders that uh, flew over the border and ransacked uh IDF observance towers and military bases in the area, catching everybody by surprise uh, and and then proceeding into many of the Jewish communities within the the Gaza border envelope, as many as uh, 15 kilometers away um, and just carrying out the most horrific acts of carnage. And the 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 most disturbing thing, as you mentioned, is it was. The, the videos uh, that were taking place that were were, were captured and it, they weren't only captured from uh, Israeli surveillance and of course there is a lot of Israeli surveillance cameras in different places and, and that provided a, a large degree of the footage but uh, even the Hamas terrorists themselves many of them had GoPro cameras on their on their heads or on on their chests uh, and they were documenting their own carnage and like you said we we've seen bodies uh burnt to a crisp completely unrecognizable the only way to identify them is is with their teeth uh you know there's babies killed babies with their heads cut off we see that there were babies killed in front of their parents parents killed in front of their children uh signs of rape and torture bodies that were were killed and then subsequently mutilated uh, repeatedly um you know the the idf has been showing in the last week uh you know raw footage to journalists that want to see it i, I personally uh, chose to not see it. Uh, it's, it's enough to, to hear the stories. I don't, I don't need to see it, but I've, I've spoken to several journalists that have seen it and wish they didn't see it. Uh, Cause you can never, you can never unsee those sites that you saw. Mm. Indeed. Yeah. In light of the fact that there are some 222 hostages that were captured by Hamas, the Palestinian Jihad. And according to published reports, most have been kept in the labyrinth of tunnels, some 300 miles of tunnels under Gaza. Uh, With just a few hostages released by Hamas, our nations, including Qatar, which are providing a safe haven for the leadership of Hamas, doing enough to pressure the terrorist group to release these hostages, including Americans. Well, Qatar is actually doing the work for Hamas, uh, right? As you mm. mentioned, uh, 
many of Hamas's senior leadership, including Ismail Hania, are inside Qatar. That's that's where they stay. Um, and the entire purpose of taking the hostages was part of a psychological warfare game that Hamas was playing. Part of that was taking footage of of the acts of carnage that they that they did, as we mentioned before. Another component of that is taking the hostages, and then also. You know, using those hostages as potential collateral uh, to retrieve prisoners that are in Israeli prisons, but also to try to postpone and uh, prevent uh, the the fullest Israeli counter response. Um, and so, you've already started to see very slowly Hamas releasing one ho- two hostages, and then another two hostages. And, and the point of that is actually to. Uh, get the international community to pressure Israel not to attack because obviously everybody wants the hostages home. Uh, Israel wants its hostages home. There are um, dozens of hostages that are are foreign uh, nationals or or dual citizens that have passports in other countries. And these countries also want their hostages home. So they're pressuring Qatar to act uh, on Hamas's behalf and communicate with Hamas to release some of the hostages. If Hamas would release two hostages a week, okay, and get Israel to pause until all the hostages were released. Well, that would be more than two years mm. of pausing. So uh, this is part of the, the the psychological warfare game that Hamas is playing. And, and while Israel certainly does want to rescue every single last one of the hostages because they value life you know, to the fullest extent, which is just such a contrast to Hamas, which really glorifies martyrdom and death, um, but at the same time, the the primary objective of the IDF has to be right now to to dismantle and decapacitate Hamas to the extent that they will never be able to take hostages again, uh, even to the uh, even to the detriment of the, of the lives of the current hostages. Alex, uh, Israel is preparing for the ground operation or ground invasion of Gaza, which is controlled by Hamas. And on Thursday, October 26th, the Israeli military carried out its biggest raid into the Gaza Strip. And what experts say is an effort to prepare for the ground operation. And according to the various reports, uh, there was a request from the U.S. to delay Israel's ground invasion of Gaza so that the Pentagon can place air defenses in the region to protect U.S troops. Alex, what can you tell us about the current situation? Right. Uh, you know, obviously Israelis and, and other observers around the world are waiting to see, you know, if and when Israel launches a ground incursion. It's it's not it's not uh, an easy decision to make to send Israeli troops into the Gaza Strip. Uh, there's no question that it's going to be a highly booby-trapped uh, urban fighting fighting environment in which many buildings have already been leveled to the ground, uh, providing lots of hiding spots for Hamas uh, militants, terrorists with weapons to to be firing on uh, Israeli troops. We, we know that Hamas has assault rifles, that they have uh, IEDs, uh, improvised explosive devices, uh, and are waiting for the IDF to come in. So the IDF has to make certain that it, it goes in when it's ready, uh, when it maintains the element of surprise, uh, when it under recognizes that its opportunities and, and chances for success 
are, are to the greatest success. Um, and, uh, the ground incursion as prime minister Netanyahu has said, uh, even yesterday in his address to the nation, it is, it is impending when that will happen and what the considerations are. We don't know all of those considerations. Certainly, uh, the Biden administration has urged, uh, Israel not to attack, uh, so quickly as they get ready for an attack. Also, Hezbollah and Iran have threatened to attack Israel if it puts uh, major troops on the ground inside the Gaza Strip. So Israel has to be sure that it's ready to fight potentially on two fronts simultaneously. So it doesn't want to send too many troops into Gaza because it might need to put even more troops on the northern border, which by all accounts is a much more potent threat to the state of Israel than Hamas poses. Um, so the, there's a lot of considerations. I, I do think that uh, most Israelis are expecting a ground incursion to be launched. Uh, what they're waiting for, uh, another another consideration could be the tunnel infrastructure of Hamas. Uh, there's over 500 kilometers of of tunnels underneath Gaza, um, and they all depend on on electricity uh, in order to communicate inside those tunnels, and also even to breathe inside those tunnels. So there, there, there are uh, circulation uh, devices that are necessary for in order to to live inside those tunnels uh, for an extended period, and and Israel seems to be waiting for the fuel to to go out. In Gaza, and that could create a situation in which Hamas terrorists have to come out of the tunnels, and that could be an advantage. So there could be lots of different reasons why the IDF is is delaying. The, the question is not going to be when did they go in, but but what happened once they do, uh, and if they win the war. Alex, you alluded to the concerns about the northern border, Israel's northern border. And we know that Iran is pushing a very dangerous rhetoric by stating that it will unleash attacks on Israel if Israel goes into Gaza. And we all know that tensions have escalated in Israel's northern border with Hezbollah, an Iranian-funded terrorist group which has around 150,000 rockets and missiles pointed towards Israel. And this is according to published reports. And we all all know that this is a huge arsenal compared to the daily rocket attacks Israelis are facing from Gaza. Now, from the reports we have seen, it seems that there's some 7,000 rockets that came in from Gaza. Alex, how concerned are Israel's government leaders that this could expand to a regional conflict or at least an attempt by Hezbollah to fire 150,000 missiles and rockets into Israel. And the second part of the question is that from a position of deterrence, is America's naval fleet, its presence there, aircraft, carriers, etc., enough to thwart an attack? Or is, or is there a need for stronger messages uh, sent from Washington, D.C. to Tehran? Well, I think part of the uh, Air Force um, deployments in the Eastern Mediterranean are actually uh, to help provide missile defense. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, Hamas, you mentioned Hezbollah. Last week, also Houthis from Yemen fired at least 19 rockets uh, at Israel, and those were long-range missiles, which are similar to the long-range missiles of, of Hezbollah, which we'll talk about in a second. And uh, it was the USS John Carney uh, that actually downed at least 19 missiles. So these aircraft carriers that the U.S. are deploying have considerable uh, missile defense capabilities on them, including long-range missile defense like Patriot missiles and, and other things. Um, and so 
it, it does help Israel to have these uh, additional missile defense systems uh, placed nearby. You, you mentioned that Hezbollah has many, many more rockets than Hamas. Hamas is believed to have tens of thousands of rockets, and they continue to fire them day after day. But most of those rockets are Qassam rockets, which are um, less sophisticated rockets. They, they can be shot basically on almost uh, mobile launchers that, that can be set up and dismantled very easily. They just kind of get fired in a general direction. And if they happen to hit, you know, that's, that's great. Uh, and also the Israeli defense forces have the iron dome system, which has been shooting over 90% of these uh, rockets out of the sky. Um, still over 400 rockets have hit uh, Israel, have, have hit uh, the ground. And it's it's actually miraculous that uh, the number of people killed from these rockets has is, is been very, very few. Each one of these rockets could kill dozens of people if it landed in the right spot at the right time. Hezbollah has 150,000 rockets, and many of these are long-range rockets. They can deliver much, much more uh, serious payloads than the Qassam rockets of Gaza, and, and many of these are even precision-guided missiles at this point. So they can target specific uh, military or political targets in, in Israel wherever they want with uh, with absolute precision within, within several meters. Um, Israel does have sophisticated... Uh, missile defense systems, not just the Iron Dome, but also the David Sling and the Arrow systems. Uh, and they've used some of those against uh, drones, which have already been uh, sent in to Israeli territory uh, from southern Lebanon, where Hezbollah is is uh, stationed. Um, and yet at the same time, if Hezbollah will start to fire its rockets in rapid succession, there's almost no amount of missile defense that, that Israel has that could uh, that could keep up with with a continuous and constant barrage of, of missiles if they're incoming. Uh, and that's why many Israeli analysts um, suggest that if Israel wants to be successful against the Hezbollah missile threat, that they actually need to attack southern Lebanon and these missile installments before Hezbollah starts firing. Now, we've heard reports that uh, the Biden administration is trying as hard as they can to press Israel to keep the conflict to a single arena, to Israel south, and focus only on Hamas. Um, but the border has been very, very active, and there's been fire both ways across the border to date. Uh, Hezbollah's fired numerous uh, anti-tank guided missiles against uh, Israeli uh, installations and local Jewish communities uh, along the, the border with Lebanon, and Israel's fired back, and they've killed at least 15 Hezbollah operatives. They've hit at uh, cells that were on the move uh, near the border, and so it, it could just be a matter of time, even a matter of moments before that border uh, flares up into a, a full-fledged uh, multi-front uh, battle. All right. Uh, Alex, we're talking about multi-front battle, and we all know that this multi-front battle is actually caused by Iran, because Iran is funding Hamas in Gaza Strip, Hezbollah in Lebanon, Houthis in Yemen, and even uh, has additional attacks on U.S. troops in Syria, in Iraq most recently. So when we think about also when this Hamas terrorists crossed the border in this horrific massacre of on October 7, 
It also happened at the verge of Saudi Arabia getting closer in negotiations to normalize relations with Israel, which is a historic development. So we have Arab countries joining in getting closer to Israel with Abraham Accords, with Bahrain, United Arab Emirates, Morocco, and even Sudan, uh, joining to sign Abraham Accords normalization for peace and trade and investments and tourism to expand ties and partnership with Israel. So the only country that is opposing that is Iran. And Iran is causing all this trouble in the Middle East. So all these multi-fronts we're talking about are actually perpetuated by Iran, which is funding terrorist groups and is known as a state sponsor of terrorism. So knowing all of that, are we doing enough to deter Iran? And what needs to be done in order to send a clear message? Stop. Well, obviously, the deterrence has uh, completely fallen apart. You know, Iran has not been deterred from attacking Israel via its proxies. Hamas obviously felt that uh, that that there was not enough security there, uh, and that they could penetrate into Israeli territory, and was willing to attack Israel regardless of what the consequences of that attack might be. And it's clear, also, it should be clear that if there was no deterrence to stop uh, Hamas, that there's little deterrence to, to stop Hezbollah as well if they decide they want to attack. They've obviously perceived Israel to be weak. I believe they've also perceived the United States to be weak. Uh, and, and this is these messages have been sent uh, by the United States, particularly because they continue continuously try to appease Iran uh, with uh, with money, um, regardless of all the evidence demonstrated demonstrating that this money is used to fund an illicit nuclear weapons program. Despite all the evidence that this money is used to fund a whole ring of Iranian terror proxies that that have created this ring of fire around Israel, as you mentioned, in, in Syria and in Lebanon and in Gaza, and even inside Israeli territory and in, inside Judea and Samaria, which is commonly known as the West Bank, even inside Jerusalem and other mixed uh, Arab Israeli cities. Um, so there there is no deterrence. And Iran has essentially declared war on Israel uh, by murdering 1,400 people and injuring thousands of others and taking 222 hostages. So now's not the time to restore the restored deterrence. Now's the time to fight the war. And I think that there's a unique opportunity here uh, in because uh, by all accounts, Iran continues to race closer to becoming a full-fledged uh, nuclear power. And the blessing is that this war is started before Iran is operating with the nuclear umbrella, because if if Hezbollah and Hamas started to attack and Iran was was sitting on uh, deliverable nuclear weapons and was threatening the use of those nuclear weapons, then Iran would have the deterrent factor to prevent uh, Israel from operating against the proxies. So I hope that uh, Israel and the United States understand that if they try to uh, put the jihadi genie back in the bottle and kick the can down the road and just establish deterrence. It's actually going to be them that gets deterred later on. And and in a in a strange and perverse way, uh, now is a much better time to be fighting this war than than in a year or so from now.
<laughs> Alex, before we begin our recording, we talked very briefly about the two major wars that are being fought today. One, which is that ground battle, the efforts to basically attack uh, Hamas terrorist locations, but also the media war, the war in the public arena, meaning the public opinion, which is now being um, basically created uh, here in the West, in America, in Europe, in other capitals, including New Delhi. Now, last week, we saw how this turned in a way that actually blamed Israel for something it did not do. All of a sudden, there was a report from BBC, CNN, and other groups within minutes of an explosion in a parking lot of a hospital. And the news came out from the Palestinian side, from the Hamas Ministry of Health, issuing a press release or a statement saying, this was an Israeli rocket that destroyed the hospital and 500 people were killed. And that was the headline on the evening news here in the United States. So all of a sudden, that stirred up great problems protests across the Middle East and in the West as well. And now we find out that it was a Hamas rocket that actually caused that explosion in the parking lot and not 500 individuals. Could you just explain to us what really happened there and why is it so important that friends of Israel and those that support Israel's sovereignty and its security efforts uh, understand the importance to communicate the truth? Yeah, absolutely. And, and as you correctly mentioned, there, there was an explosion in Gaza in the middle of the night. Uh, immediately, Hamas uh, reported that uh, Israel had struck a hospital and over 500 were dead. You know, Israel is still counting its dead from October 7th and hasn't given final numbers of how many people were killed or how many people have been uh, taken hostage. But within seconds, uh, IDF hits hospital, over 500 dead. Uh, you know, New York Times, C CNN, they all running with this headline, you're just taking, you know, the, the Gazan health ministry, which is the Hamas health ministry, because they run Gaza, you know, at its word. And within minutes, it, it was determined that it wasn't the IDF. Uh, it was uh, errant Hamas rocket. In fact, over 550 rockets fired from Gaza of the 7,000 that have been fired at Israel have landed inside Gaza. And nobody knows how many people have been killed at the hands of Hamas rockets, but more rockets have fallen inside Gaza than have fallen inside Israel. Um, just to put it into perspective and not only didn't uh didn't the idf hit the hospital but the hospital wasn't even hit uh the explosion took place in the parking lot it took place in the parking lot at overnight and how many people could have been standing in the parking lot when that when that missile hit yes uh it is believed that that uh people were killed in the attack um you know some estimates say maybe 20 people were killed in the attack uh in in, in the in the rocket uh, that hit but certainly every single element of that story was fraudulent and that didn't stop the mainstream media from reporting it they didn't want to check it the idf by contrast they had to check it took them a lot of time you know we were sitting here uh reporting the news at 1 30 in the morning and we we had already heard rumors that it might not have been an idf attack and and i was in real-time contact with the idf spokespersons unit and also with the prime minister's office um and they're they were telling us you know we have to check every single possible location in which uh missiles could have been fired from uh 
at Gaza and there were active uh, missile strikes taking place at the time. Uh, and then they had to look at surveillance footage and that's where, how they were able to spot this uh, this Hamas fired rocket. Uh, and we were actually the first news agency to report uh, the statements of the IDF and the prime minister's office that in, in fact was not uh, an IDF strike. Um, and some have corrected, you know, part of the, you know, part of the narrative and said, okay, it wasn't the IDF that struck the hospital, uh, but still a hospital was hit and 500 were killed. And no, a hospital wasn't hit and 500 weren't killed. So even the entire narrative, false narrative hasn't been repeated. But but all of this is part of the psychological warfare games uh, that Hamas is playing. And, and uh, the, the disinformation campaign is a major component you know, for, for many years. Hamas has been firing rockets at Israel, and the point of firing those rockets has never been to destroy the, the Jewish state because the IDF literally shoots the rockets out of the sky. But what happens? Hamas fires the rockets at Israel, and Israel all of a sudden has no choice. It has to try to restore deterrence, and it fires back. And a big part of the Hamas uh, psychological warfare game is this concept that it all started when he hit me back. Uh, and uh, so... Hezbollah and the rest of the Muslim world and all of the Hamas supporters out there were only waiting for the context to launch their campaigns of delegitimacy and demonization of the Jewish state. So they were waiting for the moment when civilian casualties would would mount up. And that's why Hamas hides behind civilian casualties. That's why the the Arab League and all the nations around are not opening up the Rafah border to allow Gazans to flee the Gaza Strip. They want as many civilians killed as possible, and they want to blame Israel for the death of as many civilian casualties in Gaza as possible. And this is how they delegitimize uh, the Jewish state in all the international forums, including and especially at the United Nations and elsewhere. And so those mainstream media outlets that are supporting the Hamas narratives, including the false information that gets reported, they're actually serving as the Ministry of Information for Hamas. They are willing, uh, you know, accomplices and totally complicit in Hamas's war of uh, misinformation and psychological warfare uh, aimed against the state of Israel. Right, and you mentioned United Nations. Actually, that's another dangerous rhetoric, a dangerous narrative coming from the United Nations. At the UN Secretary Council meeting this past week, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres called Hamas's October 7 massacre appalling and said nothing can justify the deliberate killing, injuring, and kidnapping of civilians or the launching of rockets against civilian targets. However, he continues, and he says, and I quote, it is important to also recognize the attacks by Hamas did not happen in a vacuum. The Palestinian people have been subjected to 56 years of suffocating occupation. They have seen their land steadily devoured by settlements and plagued by violence. The economy stifled, their people displaced, and their homes demolished. Now, we need to make sure that we understand that UN Security Council has Russian Federation still as one of the members, Russia, which in invaded, unprovoked invasion of Ukraine, and also among the Security Council members is China. And under the United Nations Charter, the functions and powers are to maintain international peace and security. 
in accordance to the principles of the United Nations. So when we hear United Nations getting into this dangerous rhetoric, which is now can be parroted by any country member of the United Nations and already has been mentioned by Congresswoman Tlaib here in America, with United States remaining the largest donor to the United Nations, what are your thoughts? What needs to be done? Should we cut funding to the United Nations? How do we get this institutions whose statements are having consequences, what do we need to do about it? The United Nations is one of the most biased organizations against Israel in the entire world. Uh, not only do uh, countries bring resolutions against Israel more than any other nation in the world, they bring more resolutions against Israel on an annual basis than all other nations in the entire world combined. Okay, so there's no pretending that uh, the United Nations is uh, is a balanced and fair arbiter of what takes place in Israel. Not to mention that uh, the United Nations, numerous sub-organizations, including UNESCO uh, and UNRWA and, and others, are actually perpetuating the lies of the Palestinian Authority, UNESCO calling uh, Jewish holy sites Palestinian heritage sites, uh, and, and UNRWA, the refugee works agency that deals specifically with Palestinians, and Palestinians are the only uh, people in the world that have their own refugee organization uh, in within the United Nations, and it's the only uh, case of refugees in the entire world in which refugees are counted to the third and the fourth generation. Uh, so just perpetuating this concept of a, a refugee crisis. UNRWA, they... They actually run schools in Gaza and inside Palestinian areas, including inside Israeli territory in Jerusalem. And, and we have seen the textbooks that are, are being published that, that continue to, to incite against the Jewish state, that deny the existence or the, or the right of the Jewish state to, to exist. You know, for many years, these textbooks, you know, which have been studied extensively, you know, they, Palestinians that that have grown up in, in Gaza and in in the Palestinian Authority, they the adults now they grew up on, on math textbooks that's that had word that had math problems that said if you have five Jews and you kill three, how many are left? And that's math. Okay, so. And this is all funded by the United Nations. So under the Trump administration, significant amounts of funding were pulled. United States uh, removed itself from UNESCO, pulled all the funding from UNRWA, uh, and, and even threatened to reduce funding from the, the main body of the United Nations as well. But as soon as the Biden administration came back into office, they restored funding to all of these organizations. Uh, and, and certainly, you know, if the United States considers its its alliance with Israel as being one of its uh, primary foreign policy uh, objectives and strategic alliances, of course, it should hold the United Nations account first and foremost and and defund these organizations that are are doing so much damage to Israel's legitimacy. Right. Your final thoughts, Alex, uh, for our listeners here in America and perhaps those listening in Europe uh, through the podcast, as we have uh, 65 radio stations here in America, audiences are very interested in knowing what your message is to them. Well, first of all, their support for the state of Israel right now is is critical. And you see so many different voices out there uh, that are delegitimizing the Jewish state, uh, specifically on social media and the mainstream media and elsewhere. Uh, they need those messages of hatred need to be flooded out with messages of love. And so I definitely urge everybody to uh, when you see 
falsehood perpetuated, uh, especially on Twitter, on Facebook, on, on Instagram and elsewhere. Point it out, call it out and say this is not correct. And, and uh, to to actually put out messages of truth and to, to show Israel and the rest of the world, you know, which side of this battle is this is the side of evil, the side of martyrdom that perpetuates death and destruction. And which side is the, the side of good that perpetuates uh, life and 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 living and ingenuity and entrepreneurship and and liberal western values and the like uh you know that so that's very very important and um i, I think also there there are significant efforts to try to divide people around this issue and and so incredible senses of unity are needed and, and also to hold american politicians to account uh, to make sure that the u.s gives israel the the time and support it needs to to finish the job and to actually decapacitate hamas and hezbollah so that they are never in position that they can commit an attack again and to have them stop forcing israel to try to cede land to to evil neighbors on the false premises that that ceding its territory is going to lead to peace and to stop funding iran as well so i think that there's a lot that uh, Americans can do and people around the world can do to support Israel and, and to make sure that Israel gets the support it needs from the, the politicians and the leadership of, of their countries. Indeed. We're joined this weekend on America's Roundtable by Alex Trayman, CEO and Jerusalem Bureau Chief of Jewish News Syndicate. We encourage our listeners and those following us in different parts of the world to visit JNS.org and we will certainly place their details on our website on AmericasRT.com. So visit JNS.org. Alex Trayman, we thank you so much for joining us on America's Roundtable. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Alex. Stay safe. Thank you, Joel. Thank you, Natasha. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting Corporation and Supertalk Mississippi Media. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joel Adinsami, your co-host, joined by economist Natasha Serdorch, co-founder of International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable guests include leading voices from business, government, media, energy, technology, healthcare, and the broad policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Spotify. Visit America's Roundtable at americasrt.com. americasrt.com. Follow us on Facebook, America's Roundtable, and Twitter at americasrt. We invite donors and advertisers to reach us by visiting our website, americasrt.com. Thank you.